You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. To Abraham a promise, a sky full of stars he sees. And the prophecy of the Lord has said, so shall your offspring be. To Isaac a sacrifice, not him to the knife, but a ram. And so will say the Lord to him, for you will sojourn in this land. To Jacob a blessing, but only after struggle. And he shall lead his people with a limb and is so renamed Israel. Hear, O Israel, you are to love the Lord your God. You live and struggle and groan in strife, but you pray to the God most high. Rejoice, O Israel, the Lord has seen, the Lord has heard. A deliverance is coming soon, the savior of the world. To Mary came an angel, he told her not to fear. For to the virgin a child is born, Emmanuel is here. Our hope is in this gift of love, this promised Prince of Peace. Rejoice today, for he's coming again. His reign will never cease. Well, good morning. Hope you're doing well. My name is Clint, one of the guys on staff. Hope you guys had a happy Thanksgiving. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Titus chapter two. That's where we're gonna be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the seatbacks around you. Should be on page 998. Um, I wanna take a moment before we jump into Titus to say hello to some of our smaller friends, right, who are in the room with us this morning. If you hadn't picked up on it yet, um, we uh, have our preschool through fifth grade in the room with us this morning. They typically gather next door upstairs and we invited them into this room today for a reason and I'll tell you here in a moment. But if you are pre-K through fifth grade and you're normally over there but you're in here today, would you raise your hand for me? You're normally in the other room. Raise your hand high. Now you got little arms, right? Raise them, raise them up, wave. Let me see you. All right, cool. Just wanna know who you are. Week in and week out, we have about 100 of those people, give or take. Um, and so they've been in the room with us this morning, several in the first service, and they're here with us now. And I wanna say something to you, uh, little guys, and then uh, some to your parents here in a bit. But um, I want you to hear um, from me uh, on behalf of our church to our preschool through fifth graders that you belong here. Right, that you are a part of us, that we don't wanna just create a space for you to do your thing so we can do our thing, but we do a thing together as we gather in this room. We worship together and respond to the goodness and the grace of God. And so you make us who we are, right? We say a lot of, we talk about a church. And when we say church, we think of a building, but in reality, the church is the people of God. And we are not who, we are not the people of God. We are not CBC without you. And so we're grateful for you. We're glad you're in the room um, with us this morning. Parents, um, we know that today is gonna be a little more wiggly, all right, than normal. We're okay with that. We're gonna embrace that chaos together. Um, and the reason why is this. Like I said, we worship the same God every single week. They, over there, in kind of their specific environments and us in here, we worship the same God. Um, but we think that if we always do it separately, then we're missing out on an opportunity, if we never invite our middle school students in, our high school students in, our children into the room with us, if we're always separate, then we're missing out on an opportunity. Um, we think it's good to get in the same room together, periodically, to position ourselves together under the authority of the word of God and to respond in song and worship um, as only God deserves. And so um, that's adults, children, everywhere in between. We all need that, right? And so we're in this together. We're glad you're here. If you're a visitor with us this morning, normally 
The way we do this is we preach through books of the Bible. So we just finished the book of Colossians this fall. Earlier this year, we preached through the Old Testament book of Judges. Um, And this morning, we're actually gonna start a four-week Advent series. And so if you don't know what we mean when we say Advent, Advent is a Latin word, or it's from a Latin word. That means a coming, or to come, or an arrival. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, Christians, the church, not the building, but the people, have been celebrating Advent, okay? Um, and, and really when I say celebrate, it's more, uh, not so much of a holiday, it's more of a season. We celebrate the season of Advent. And it's a four-week period of time that leads us up to Christmas where we remember the birth of Jesus, where we remember that Jesus came, right? We remember his first Advent. And what I want us to see, what I want us to tap into here is that Jesus' first Advent, his first coming, it didn't just happen out of the blue, but it was prophesied about for hundreds of years, um, thousands of years really, that God gave his people a promise that although the world is not the way he created it, that his perfect creation had been broken because of sin, the world was not the way it should be, but God gave his people a promise that he would fix it, that someone would come, that he would send a savior, a Messiah, and God's people put his hope in this promise. There was someone coming who would fix the brokenness in this world. In Isaiah chapter seven, the prophet Isaiah is talking about this day when one would come to make things right again. And he says this, it should be on the screen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is a sign that the promised one is coming. This is the the Messiah, the one you put your hope in, the one you've been waiting for. He says this, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so God, through the prophet Isaiah, is trying to point his people to something. He wants them to see something, right? He wants them to to know that something better is coming and that something is coming worth waiting for. God wants his people to be looking for it, right? He wants them to be living in anticipation and expectation and hope. And he says, I'll give you a sign. So what are signs for? Signs points us that something's coming, right? If you see a sign on the road, you know, hey, this is happening up ahead. And so in the same way, God is saying, be looking. I'm gonna give you a sign. Be anticipating the arrival of something. What we find out is it wasn't just something that was coming, it was a someone, and his name is Jesus. And in Matthew chapter one, as Matthew is describing the actual events that happened, that took place as Jesus was born, he actually quotes Isaiah seven, what we just read. 700 years after the death of Isaiah, Matthew is quoting Isaiah 7 where he says, behold, the the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And he's saying, this is what just happened when he was born. And then he adds this part, he says, which means God with us. This is this word Emmanuel. So what Matthew's doing there is he's pointing us back to, this is what what they would have understood when he say Emmanuel, it means that God is with us. And so Jesus' birth, his first coming, doesn't just happen out of the blue. It was this culmination of hundreds of years of expectation, hundreds of years of God's people waiting for him to fulfill a promise that he made. And so at Advent, we remember the birth of Jesus and it should remind us, you and I, as we remember the birth of Jesus, it should remind us something that is inherently true about our God. And our elementary school students can help us with this. This is one of our core truths that we teach them every single week next door, upstairs. This Advent should remind us this, and we're gonna put it on the screen. I'm gonna read it, and the capital letters I want you to read. All right, let's see how we do. Our God always keeps his, because he is, yeah. 
Our God always keeps his promises because he's faithful, right? The purpose of Advent is to remind us of the faithfulness of God. Because not only did Jesus come, what we celebrate as Christians is that Jesus coming goes far deeper than that. And we're gonna see this in Titus 2 here in a second. But the Bible says that Jesus didn't just come, but he gave his life for us. The eternal son of God who always was and always will be, he left his place in heaven where he was at the right hand of God the Father where the Bible says hundreds and thousands of angels and heavenly beings sang to him, saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. And Jesus willingly left that place of honor and he took the, the, the humble position of being born as a baby. He became a man. Not just any baby, right? He was born in a feeding trough. He was born in a nowhere town to a nowhere mama who was teenage and everyone thought she had been unfaithful to her husband. Jesus gave his life for us. From his first breath to his last, every moment of his life was lived to secure for you and me a place that we could never deserve and we could never earn on our own. Our God always keeps his promises because he's faithful. This is the story that the Advent season should draw us into. That no matter how difficult the circumstances of our lives may be, there's something coming that's better. Our God is Emmanuel, he is with us. Our God has not abandoned us. And so just like the God's people in the Old Testament who had been given a promise that something better was coming and they longed for the Messiah, they longed for the promised one who would come to fix what was broken in the world. Just like them, you and I, on this side of the cross, we don't long for him to come for the first time. We long for him to come again. We are no longer waiting for the Messiah to come. We are waiting for his return. And so all the hope that we have in the gospel, that Jesus came as a baby and he gave his life for us so that you and I could be welcomed into belonging to the family of God, all the hope we have in that good news, somehow the good news gets better. Because not only did Jesus come, but the Bible says that he will come again. Only this time he's not coming as a baby. He will come as the rightful king of the universe. And Revelation says that on that day when he comes, he will make all things new. Translation, all things better. Look at Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God promises us that no matter how difficult the situations and circumstances of your life may be, or how great they are, there's something coming that's better. And his name is Jesus. This is what it means to celebrate Advent, that God is with us, and it should shape everything about the way we live our lives. I told you before that I, I love to play basketball, go figure. Um, and it hasn't always been this way, right? I didn't grow up loving to play basketball, but I do now. And so this is my greatest basketball memory. You ready? Um, so my wife and I, her name is Mary Elizabeth. We were living in Texas at the time. I was a student pastor at a church there. Um, and every Tuesday at four o'clock, we played basketball and it was awesome, right? I looked forward to it every week, had a great time. So on June 9th, 2015, not that I'm keeping record or anything, um, we were playing basketball, and we'd probably been playing for 45 minutes, and all of a sudden, two of our high school students, these girls, they bust in the gym, and they're screaming my name, and they're saying, Clint, 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 you have to come outside. We need you outside right now. And my first thought is, you're trying to prank me. 
okay? Because I've been conditioned as a student pastor, that's the mentality you have to keep. When the Bible says, stay vigilant, that's one of the direct applications. Watch out for high school kids trying to prank you. Um, I've had every square inch of my, my truck covered with post-it notes. And that's a dilemma because if I drive away and they all fly off and then I'm just horrible and littering on the environment, right? I don't care about the earth. But if I take them off, it takes hours. That's a dilemma to put yourself in. I've had my truck covered, I kid you not, 50 rolls of saran wrap wrapped in my vehicle. Um, tires, axle, the whole bit, all right? Um, the summer before this story, uh, these two guys that were in our ministry actually conspired against me with my wife. So that when I came down a, uh, a zip line, she agreed to distract me so they could hit me in the face with a pie, all right? <laughs> Not just like a whipped cream tinfoil thing, like a, a chocolate pie, like a $15 chocolate pie on your face. Um, so my new motto is trust no one, okay? Um, so anyways, we're playing basketball, they bust inside, and they're like, hey, you need to come outside. And I'm thinking, you're gonna attack me with jello water balloons, I ain't doing it, right? I'm not going out like that. I'm unarmed, and so I'm standing here. Um, anyways, they, they persist, and they're like, no, 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 you need to come outside, and then they go, well, Mary Elizabeth needs you. And again, I'm skeptical, because she's conspired against me already, so I, I don't know if I can trust this woman. But anyways, they keep going, and, they're, and I'm starting to panic, because like, no, no, you have to. Mary Elizabeth needs you. And so I run outside and I'm, I'm worried, right? She's been in an accident. Why else would they bust in on this sacred time of hoops on Tuesday like that? They know how important this is. Um, and I go into full-on panic mode and so I drop the ball and I run outside and, um, and they're pointing to where to go and I turn the corner and my wife's standing there and she's got two balloons, a pink one and a blue one, and she's holding a onesie, okay? Um, and it, I, to my shame, it took me a lot longer to figure out what was happening. <laughs> Um, than it should have. Again, because I'm like, who's gonna snipe me with a dart? Like, you know, the whole thing. But anyways, the reason why I tell you this story is up to that point, for over four years, we had been waiting for a baby. Right? We had wanted a baby. Um, and what I want you to see in that is on June 8th and on June 9th, we were both waiting. The waiting hadn't changed, but what changed was that our waiting began to look different. So for four years, we wanted a baby and we prayed for a baby and we asked God for a baby and we did what we needed to do and we went to the doctors and we tried everything we knew to get a baby, right, to have one, but by, it just didn't happen. And so in that, there were sad days and there were bad days all mixed in, but by and large, our, that waiting time for those four years, it didn't shape the way we lived our lives. That's kind of what I want you to see here. But starting June 9th, our waiting looked different. Our expectation was different. We were still waiting for a baby, but now we knew one was coming. And that changed things. So we started to prepare. We started to get a nursery together and my wife started to plan immediately of how we're gonna announce to our families, you know, the whole thing, the whole reveal is a big deal these days. Um, but we wanted to be ready. We wanted to wait well. And again, my family's in a similar position, right? We found out by God's grace we're having another baby in February. Um, this time, a baby girl, right, praise God, um, which means we wanna get ready, we wanna wait well. It means more pink things are showing up in my house these days than ever were before. Um, it means that I'm gathering my boys together, I've had this conversation already, 20 months old, almost four, and I'm like, buddy, you're not the most important thing anymore in the house, okay? There's one coming who is the most important thing and it changes the way we live, and so here's what I need to teach you, we will protect her at all costs. These are the conversations we're having, okay? You won't always be small, 
but you're small now. And so I'm teaching them the soft spots, right? And I'm like, if anybody tries to do anything to your sister, when she comes, you hit them there as hard as you can, right? No shame. And we're having these conversations because we wanna wait well. We wanna be ready. And the reason why I share this with you is because I think this is the life of the Christian. And this is what we celebrate at Advent. That not only has Jesus come, but he's promised that he will come again. And we know that God will keep his promises because he's faithful. And so we are awaiting people. You and I, if you're a believer, if you identify as a Christ follower, we are awaiting people and we should want to wait well. Meaning our waiting should deeply affect the way we live our lives every single day. And what I wanna talk about today is how do we wait well? How do we do that? Titus 2, verse 11. Look there with me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And so Paul says, the grace of God appeared bringing salvation for all people. So what's he talking about here? He's talking about the promise we read earlier, right? That God's people had waited for for hundreds and hundreds of years, this promise coming to fulfillment in the birth of Jesus that a virgin would conceive and she would bear a son and she would call his name Emmanuel, that he is God with us. And Paul says in Titus, the grace of God appeared, bringing what? Salvation. Which means that what Paul has in mind here isn't just that Jesus was born, But more he had in mind all the things that Jesus accomplished for us because Jesus being born doesn't bring us salvation. His life, his death, his resurrection is what brings us salvation and Paul describes this in verse 14. He says this, Jesus who he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. I said before, every moment of Jesus' life from his first breath to his last was lived to secure for you a place that you couldn't earn. He says he gave himself for you to redeem you and to purify you, two things. This word redeem, it means to liberate, right? To liberate by payment of ransom. So Jesus came and gave his life for us to set us free from captivity, to set us free from slavery to sin. And the imagery here is he talks about this idea of redemption or ransom is that the fact that we were kidnapped that we were held hostage, that we actually chained ourselves in the darkness of our own sin. And the only way for us to ever be set free from that was for the ransom, for the price to be paid. Only we have nothing to give. And the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation. Jesus pays the price by offering to take our place. He gave his life to redeem us. But he also gave his life to purify us, which means to be made clean. And here's what that means. That is good news for us because it means that God's expectation for you in this moment is not, I gave everything for you and so you need to go earn it and don't make me regret what I did for you. That is not God's disposition to us, no. When Jesus gave his life, we are not only redeemed, not only purchased, we are forever made clean, purified. And Jesus did this to purify for himself a people for his own possession that we now belong to him not as slaves, 
but his sons and daughters. And church, if you could believe that, your life would change forever. If you could believe that, your life would change forever, that in this very moment, regardless of all the bad things you've done or all the good things that you have failed to do, God the Father loves you as a child with the same love that he has for Jesus. And so if you're following me there, you're probably thinking, how could that be? That's the natural disposition, the natural response to that statement is how could that be? That's impossible. I've done too much, I've gone too far, I don't deserve that. If you're feeling that, you should. That is the natural response. How could that be? And the answer is grace. That nothing is impossible with God. God's grace has appeared, giving him, he gave himself for you to redeem you and to purify you so that you can confidently say in this moment, I belong to him as a child. I am loved in this moment with the same love that Jesus or that God has for Jesus. So Paul says, the grace of God appeared in verse 11, and then this word appeared shows up again in verse 13. Look at it with me. He says this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about the promise of God to us that although Jesus has come, he has given us his word that there will be a day where he will come again. And this word appeared in the original language, it literally translates to shine a light on. So if you were to look at it in the Greek, you would think of the English word epiphany. That's where we get the word epiphany because it shines a light on something. And Paul is using this word to describe what Jesus did in his first coming and what he will do in his second coming. He's saying that Jesus, at his birth, the grace of God appeared. It shined a light, right? And this is what happens when God shows up, light. John says it this way in John chapter one, it should be on the screen. In him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, cannot overcome it. Verse nine, the true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is how Jesus identifies himself, doesn't he? He says, I am the light of the world. And Paul is drawing on all of this imagery when he says the grace of God appeared that it was like a light shining in the darkness and light causes us to see and when you can see, do you not live differently than when you cannot? Yes, I'm gonna answer that question for you. So Paul says, he goes on to say that we're waiting on another appearing. The light didn't just come once, but it's gonna come again. Only this time, he doesn't describe it as God's grace. He says we are waiting on the appearing of the glory of God the day where Jesus will come back and make all things new. And on that day, he won't be pushed out to the margins or the fringes of society, and no one will wonder if he is who he says he is. We will all know. And Philippians says that on that day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. Jesus is coming back. And Paul's point is this. We can see now, but there will come a day where we will see more clearly. And we should live in light of that seeing. That's his point. There will come a day where we will see more clearly and so we wait. Like God's people for thousands of years, we are awaiting people, building our lives on the promises of God. So how do we wait well? I'm gonna give you two things. And the first one is gonna sound super obvious, but it's important. How do we wait well? If we wanna wait well, we have to know we're waiting. That sounds obvious, but it's important, right? We should wait 
like it's June 9th and not like it's June 8th. So I mentioned earlier that we spent four and a half, hour, four and a half years, not hours, many hours, four and a half years waiting for a baby. And in that time, we wanted it to happen. We really did, we were waiting for it, we wanted it to happen. I said, we prayed, we asked God, we saw doctors, we spent money, we did everything we knew to do. But if I'm honest, most days, my heart posture was, this is just how life's gonna be. This is just the way things are going to be. And I think it was sad, but I just kinda came to terms with it. And so, I think for many of us, this sums up our lives. We just kind of come to terms with how bad things are and we just said, I just gotta make the best of it. This is how life's gonna be. We wait like it's June 8th and not like June 9th and let me tell you, June 9th changed my life forever. And the reason why is because then I knew I was waiting. I knew that someone was coming and I think many of us live like we aren't waiting for something better. We live like this is all we have, like this is all there is and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying to you I am not saying to you that if you just have faith or you just believe enough, then God will do for you whatever you want him to do. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that he has given you his promise and he always keeps his promise because he's faithful. He's given you his promise that there is coming a day where Jesus will return and on that day it'll be better. He has given us this promise. So we should live like this is true. So by all means, man, go to God with the deep longings of your heart. Go to God with your expectations and your hopes and your dreams. But go to him knowing that you can trust him with the results. That maybe, by God's grace, the circumstances of your life do turn out the way you want them to. Maybe they do get better, and I pray they do. But maybe, well, God will use the difficulty of the circumstances of your life to reveal to you over and over and over again, which is his grace, that there is something better for you to wrap your arms around. There is a hope that is better. Either way, we need to know we're waiting. The other side of this coin, and this may actually be where most of you find yourself in the room this morning. If, if we are awaiting people, waiting for something better to come, then we need to quit living like all we have is here and now. And here's what I mean by that. You're not making the best of your circumstances. You're not just coming to terms with how bad things are. You're living the dream. Right, you're soaking in all that the world has to offer for you and you could give a rip whether something better was coming or not because you're fine just now. Many of us live like that and we don't know we're awaiting people. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and it should do something to us. Verse 12, training us to renounce or to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and training us to live or to say yes to self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So God's grace changes us, it shapes us. When we see the light, we live differently, and he says it this way, that we would renounce ungodliness and we would live self-controlled. God's grace trains us to no longer live as slaves to the desires inside of us, where if you want something, you take it. And who cares about the consequences or who cares how it affects the people around you? That's what it means to live with worldly passions. This is prevalent all of our lives, but particularly this time of year, isn't it? Where everything around you says, you deserve to be happy. And what you need to be happy is a new whatever. You deserve to be happy, what you need to be happy is a new car, Lexus with a bow on it on Christmas morning, what you need is a new phone or whatever. 
Doesn't matter that you can't afford it. Doesn't matter how it affects your family. You deserve to be happy. And what you need to be happy is this. This is living like the world can satisfy the deep longings of your heart that only Jesus can. This is living with worldly passions. But friends, the Bible says, the the Christian story says that we are awaiting people. And oftentimes, we don't even want those things until we see that somebody else has them. And then we gotta have it because we have to keep up with them or we actually have to be better than them. And this bent inside of us, it starts super young. So the other night I had my boys in the tub and Zeke's my older son and I asked him, I said, hey buddy, do you wanna get out first because he's more particular? And he said, no daddy, I wanna keep playing. Okay, move to the next one. Brooks, come on buddy. So he stands up and as soon as he stands up, Zeke sees that and decides, no, I actually do wanna get out first. So he jumps up, pushes his brother down in the water and says, no Brooks, I'm getting out first, right? Like seconds after, he just said he wanted to keep playing. And we kind of chuckle about that and we're gonna dismiss it, right? That's just how kids act. But is it just how kids act? Or is that how we act too, but we're just better at hiding it? And the worst part about this is it's not just things that we use this way, it's people. People become commodities as well. And we don't care who we have to push down so long as we are the ones on top. That's how we live our lives. This is what it means to live with worldly passion, seeing the world and everything in it as if it exists to satisfy our cravings. And Paul says Jesus came and it trains us to live our lives saying no to that and to move towards being self-controlled. We're trained by that. Has anyone ever done any serious training? I haven't, all right, it's too hard. Um, But if you've ever done any serious training, running for a marathon or training for sports or whatever it is, was it easy? No, but why you do it? Because the end result is worth it and Paul's point is we say no and we wait because something better is coming and Jesus is worth it. So to wait well, we need to know we're waiting and then here's the second thing, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. To wait well, we need to know we're waiting, but we need to wait in hope. All right, but this hope is different than the way we typically use the word hope. We use the word hope, we'll say, hey, I hope it doesn't rain later today. I hope I get the toy that I want for Christmas. I hope the dogs beat LSU next weekend. Amen, nothing? All right, I do. What we're saying is we wish. I hope it's gonna happen, but I'm not sure if it will or not. But the way the Bible uses this word is different. It's not a wish. It's not something we're uncertain about. Hope in the Bible is this. It's looking forward in confident expectation. Biblical hope is looking forward in confident expectation. And Paul says that we are people who are waiting for our blessed hope. And this word blessed, it means happy, but it goes deeper than that, right? It is a fullness of satisfaction, of happiness that only the creator God can give you, one that never runs out, one that never disappoints you. And he says our happy hope, our blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So our hope as Christians is the reality that Jesus has promised that he will come back and make all things new. And so for you, no matter how difficult the circumstances of your life may be, no matter how great they are, there's something coming that's better. And his name is Jesus. This is our hope. 
It's not a wish, it's looking forward with confident expectation because our God keeps his promises. And here's our confidence in that hope. If there was a sin with more power than the grace of God, or if there was a hope that is more blessed than Jesus, then he would still be in the grave, and he's not. Jesus is alive and so our hope is alive. And and here Paul says our hope is blessed. Peter says it's a living hope, a hope that will never disappoint us. The only hope that satisfies. So hope is looking forward in confident expectation, which means that hope is not just a thing, but it's also an expectation that we put in that thing. We place our hope in something and then we ask it to deliver something back to us. It's an object and an expectation. And I know you're like me, we tend to put our hope in in things that can never deliver to us what we expect of them. We tend to attach the hope of our hearts to things that can never do what we ask of them. And this is why you live your life so frustrated and so confused and so disappointed all the time. Like, why am what I'm doing not working? I feel like I'm running the playbook of everything everyone tells me to do, but I continually hit the ceiling. I'm frustrated, I'm confused, I'm disappointed because you put your hope in the wrong thing. And so I just wanna ask us, just be honest, in this moment, where have you put your hope? Where have you put your hope? Maybe for you it's the, the affirmation of the people in your life. That your hope is that the people around you would make you feel good about yourself. With likes on Instagram or comments on Facebook or act, whatever. Your hope is the people around you making you feel good about yourself. Maybe your hope is in being a great mother Maybe your hope is one day I'll be a mother. Maybe your hope is in a great marriage or that one day you'd be married or being successful in your career or in material things, making a bunch of money. I don't know what it is. It could be any of those things. Other things could be a combination of all of them, but we need to know where we've put our hope. Here's a way for you to get to the bottom of this in your own heart. You fill in the blank in this. If only I had blank, then my life would be what I want it to be. If you answer that question, it's a tool for you to know, hey, where have I put my hope? What is the thing that I think will satisfy me? If only I had blank, then my life would be what I want it to be. And you can use this on kind of the macro level of your life, up top, kind of the big things, and you can use this all the way down to the small moments of life. Whenever you're frustrated or confused or disappointed, when you feel that way, what's wrong here? You ask yourself, where's my hope? What am I expecting in this moment would give me something? Where have I placed my hope? And what do I I feel like if I had, my life would be okay? And we have to do this work in our hearts because here's the reality. Any place or any person that you put your hope in that is not the Lord Jesus is a misplaced hope. It will never deliver to you what you want it to. It will always leave you disappointed always fall short on your expectations and Christ alone is the blessed hope. Jesus will never disappoint you. Now, what can happen and what many of you have experienced is why you're doubting what I just said is you can be disappointed in Jesus if you're using him to get something and he doesn't give you that thing, which reveals that your hope isn't in Jesus, it's in the thing that you're using him to get we are awaiting people and we wait in hope a confident expectation that something better is coming 
Really quickly, look at verse 15 with me. Verse 15 says, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So the Apostle Paul is the guy who's writing this letter and he's writing it to a guy named Titus who is one of his closest friends in ministry whom he left in, on an island called Crete, which is off the coast of modern day Greece. Okay, so he's in the Mediterranean. They show up, they preach the gospel. People respond in faith. The church is born there. And Paul and Timothy go to Ephesus and they leave Titus behind, okay? And so he's there basically as their pastor. And Paul writes this letter to him to encourage him in the work. And he says, remind him, this is where hope is found. And then he says to, to Titus, declare these things. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Here's what I want you to see in that. There's a ton of application for us. I want you to see this one. The hope of our hearts can be slippery, which means we can do our best to plant our hope at the foot of the cross in Jesus, but if we don't pay attention, it could wander off. Hope's like a toddler. You put it down, you gotta pay attention because it's going to the street, right? It's going towards danger. It, it happens. And what I think this is teaching us is Paul's telling Titus, continue to declare. This word declare, it means to exhort, to, to preach, to speak it over, to continually remind them of this thing, which means for you that you don't have to do this alone. It means you can't do it alone. Especially this time of year, around the holidays, we're surrounded by people, but do we ever feel more alone? And now we have to add this thing on top of it where we have to try to figure out where have I put my hope in this thing so I'm not being disappointed. And Titus reminds us that we're not alone. And only has God promised us that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us. He's given us people to help us. So we need to find people in our lives who can be Titus for us, who can continually remind us, continually ask us and help us, who we actually let into the spaces of our life where we're not pretending with them so they actually know when something's off in us. Say, hey man, what's going on? And then you're honest with them and they're saying, I'm frustrated, life's not going the way I want to. Okay, sorry that that's happening. What's underneath that? Or have you put your hope? The way that we do that at CBC is not the only way, but it's the way we do it. We do it in community groups. So we're telling you to be in community groups, not because we want one more thing for you to do, but because we believe it is critical to have people around you who can help you declare these things and that you would be that type of person for someone else. So my question to you would be, who are the people around you that help you? Who are the people that you have committed to help? And then I need you to see one more thing before we sing. Look again at verse 11. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting. So notice, we don't train ourselves to renounce and to live self-control. We don't train ourselves to then see the grace of God. What's the order? The grace of God appears in the darkness and it trains us. Like a light shining in the darkness and then it's the grace of God and the appearing of the birth of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. It's an inside out transformation as we've been talking that we don't earn our way to see the grace of God, but God, as a gift of grace, he reveals to us like a light shining in the darkness and then it reshapes who we are and what we do. 
And what I want you to see in that is with God, it is not be on your best behavior. Do all the things that you need to do and then you will get what you want for Christmas. But with God, it's grace. And we are given a gift, a gift we could never deserve. And then we get to live our lives blown away by the reality that the God of the universe loves us with the same love he has for Jesus. And we wait. We wait well for the return of our living hope. Let me pray for us and then we're gonna respond in singing. Father, we need your help. I feel like there are people in this room all over the map, tender to the reality this morning that they need you and there are folks in here who could care less. So I pray God that the grace of God would appear to all of us in this moment. That whether our hearts are dark a little bit or dark a lot, our need for you is the same, whole and complete. We need you to move and so as we sing, God, would your spirit move? By the power of the Holy Spirit, would you show us that you are enough? that we don't have to go looking for anything or anything else to satisfy us because you are the blessed hope. Help us, God, to put our hope and trust in you and you alone, we pray in Jesus' name. If you would stand, let's respond through song to the goodness and grace of God.